Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Martin Williams about the new book, When the Sahara Was Green, How Our Greatest Desert Came to Be. The little-known history of how the Sahara was transformed from a green and fertile land into the largest hot desert in the world. A valuable look at how an iconic region has changed over millions of years. When the Sahara was green reveals the desert's surprising past to reflect on its present, as well as the possible future. Well, Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Shall I press continue? Nope, everything is good. So, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Yes, um, what I might do is start with a telephone call, which uh, I just graduated from my old university, Cambridge University, and I was out caving in the wilds of Derbyshire in the north of England. We were living in Sheffield at the time. I went to school there after after we left France, and one of my old lecturers um, telephoned, and my mother took the call, and He said, would Martin like to join a British Army expedition to southeast Libya in a week's time? (laughs) And it was the middle of summer. And of course, as soon as I got home, I said, yes. And then I said, well, what do I have to do? And the answer was everything. Now, that meant the geology, the archaeology, mapping the mountain we were going to go and see. But... Before then, as part of my honours work at university, I had spent many very wet months in the southwest of Ireland in the mountains mapping glacial deposits and glacial landforms. And the whole time I was there, it rained every day. I was never dry. I never even saw the top of the mountains. They were covered in cloud. I did many years later and realized how beautiful they were. So when someone suggested going to the Sahara, I thought, well, there's a good chance I might stay dry for a while. And uh, that's what led me. That's, That's why I said yes so quickly. But going back about 10, 12 years before then, when I was um, just finished primary school in France and started at the high school, the Lycée Hoche, I read a popular article by a very eminent French geographer, Gautier, on the dead valleys of the Sahara, Les Valleys Mortes du Sahara. And even when I was nine or ten, I thought, I want to go and see those for myself. I won't believe until I've seen them. And so by the age of about 10, a seed had been sown, which grew through time. And suddenly when the opportunity arose, then I went to the Sahara. And my parents, my my father was a sort of gypsy-like person in, in that he worked for the railways. After three years, he bored of the job, moved to another country, moved to another 
city. So as kids, we were always moving until we went to high school. And my mother said, enough, here we stay. And so imagine this 21-year-old, very used to the green of Europe and the wet climate of southwestern Ireland, suddenly in the middle of summer, when the shade temperatures were of the order of 50 degrees Celsius and there was no shade, in this land of sand, dust, rock, rock, dust, sand, where we spent the next couple of months, everywhere you went, two things struck me. One was the abundant evidence of a former human presence. Today, there wasn't a blade of grass. We were finding ostrich eggshell beads. We were finding stone tools. We were finding fish bones, bones of hippo, bones of elephant. We were finding beautiful rock paintings showing people engaged in herding cattle in the middle of the Sahara. Later, I discovered these were about five, 6,000 years old. It showed um, cattle, uh, scenes of homestead, women riding uh, what, oxen, uh, carrying babies, hunting scenes, dogs. So the first question that arose in my mind immediately was, why was the Sahara once green? When was it green? Why isn't it green today? And could it become green in the future? And those questions I was asking when I was 21, and 50 years later, I'm still asking those same questions, but we've got some pretty good answers now. And of course, there are further questions. And the second thing that struck me was the abundant evidence of the former action of running water, of rivers, former lakes, torrents in the mountains. And obviously, if you've got cattle, then you need water. They have to be watered every day. And if plants are to thrive, then you need water. If you're going to have elephants, you need a savanna environment. And that then led me on a series of journeys across the Sahara, um, and I'll talk about one of them in a moment, which really gave rise to the book, um, How Green, When the Sahara Was Green, How Our Greatest Desert Came to Be. In, I, I was looking for a job after this trip, first trip to the Eastern Sahara, and so I landed a job mapping soils along the Blue and White Nile for a few years. And in my vacations, which were quite long, a couple of months, I went back to the Sahara, again with the attached to the British Army, who were quite good at that sort of thing, although they fed us on World War II dog biscuits, which were awful, <laughs> and salt tablets, which I threw away. And I was invited to join them on a trip to a place called Adrabus in Niger, in the Tenere Desert, and it's, it's right in the heart of the Sahara. If you draw a circle of radius 1,500 kilometers, you would only just intersect the Mediterranean in the north and the Atlantic in the south. And our Land Rovers broke down, the half shafts broke in the mountains. So Professor Desmond Clark, a very distinguished archeologist, based at the University of California, Berkeley, and I, and a local Touareg guide with three camels and a few sticks of wood and a bit of water, set forth to walk to the mountain through the dunes. The dunes were about 100 meters high, and it was a three-day walk. And on the way, one of the first things we spotted was the top of a sandblasted pot. And Desmond Clark got out his brush and dental picks and Zoe, our guide, squatted down. Even the camels were watching, convinced we were looking for gold. And up came another pot, 
beautifully decorated, and inside it were the dried fruit of Celtis integrifolia, which is a tree that today needs at least uh, 450 millimeters, half a meter of rain a year to thrive. So within the first day's walk by camel and on foot, we immediately twigged to the fact that the people who made these pots were living in a very different environment, which allowed these Celtus trees to grow. And I also saw the shells of a big land snail, a thing called Limicularia flammata, which today in Sudan lives in the acacia tall grass savanna. Once again, 450, 500 millimeters of rain. So by the time we reached Adrabus, we, were, we found thousands upon thousands of stone tools on the way, on the surface of the sand. There were arrowheads, there were grindstones. And on the first morning at Adrabus, Desmond and I got up early before the sun rose. And just as the sun was shining, we spotted something white gleaming through the very dark clay, the dark, hard clay. We thought it was a bone. It wasn't. It was a little bit of horned core. And it took us later 14 days with dental picks and brushes to excavate a complete domestic Neolithic cow that died just over 5,000 years ago in the heart of the Sahara. And we were there for 12 weeks, three months. We excavated every day. I was responsible for determining the pattern of past environmental changes, looking at the soils, looking at the landforms, uh, looking at the basic geology. And we realized that there'd been periodically wetter phases in the past and drier phases when dunes were active and sand covered the old lake beds, which dried out. Later, they refilled. The sand was washed away. And we had a record that went back from the Neolithic Late Stone Age, Middle Stone Age, Early Stone Age with these beautiful hand axes, which are about um, oh, one and a half times as long as my hand, beautifully made, and over half a million years old. So people had been living intermittently in the heart of the Sahara and many other parts of the Sahara for at least half a million years. And we now know, in fact, it was well over a million years. And that um, immediately prompted me to ask, what caused these changes in climate? Now, as we all know, it's been very fashionable to blame humans for climate change. And there's a lot of truth in that. And in the 70s, there was a school of thought, quite influential, that said the Great Sahara Desert came into being because of humans, overgrazing, faulty irrigation. And I thought this was nonsense. You know, these were very reputable scientists from across, from the United States, from Europe, other parts of the world. And I thought, well, Let's actually look carefully at the evidence. What does it tell us? And let's find out what caused these fluctuations in climate. And the first thing to say is that the Sahara as a desert came into being about 7 million years ago. Now, that was well before any humans appeared on the globe well before, and certainly well before Homo sapiens. 
And the reasons were very, very straightforward. The oceans around the world became much colder. There was less evaporation from the oceans. Therefore, there was less rain. And so whatever rain reached the Sahara was less than even today. The secondly, Africa, or the African tectonic plate, was moving north at um, the fingernail growth rate of a couple of centimeters a year. And 200 million years ago, the equator ran right across what is now the central Sahara. And the Sahara was covered in equatorial rainforest and great swamps and lakes. And dinosaurs, large and small, roamed the Sahara until 65 million years ago when they became extinct and the mammals took over, as we all know. So the second thing was that there was a very large ocean to the north of um, North Africa, extending right across to India. And this sea, called the Tethys Sea, began to dry out and shrink so that there was less moisture available to water the northern part of North Africa. And the third factor, and it's the critical one, is that by the time um, we reach a couple of million years ago, and even well before then, all of what is now North Africa was already located in subtropical latitudes where the air masses are dry, descend, become compressed, become warmer, and act as gigantic desiccators. If you like, imagine pumping up your bicycle tire for people that still ride bicycles. Um, they get hotter and hotter. That's because the air is getting compressed. So the Sahara as a desert is there for very good, immutable geographic reasons. Nothing to do with humans, nothing whatsoever. Now let's turn to these um, wet and dry phases. And now I'll indulge you in a little bit of very elementary astronomy. The Earth, as Galileo well knew, travels around the sun. And <laughs> the path is not a circle, it's an ellipse. It's a slightly irregular ellipse because the sun isn't right at the center of the ellipse. And periodically, the ellipse is more elliptical and periodically less elliptical. And that cycle is roughly 100,000 years, 96,600 to be pedantic. And that's responsible for about a 3% change in solar radiation received in high northern mid-latitudes. Secondly, the tilt of the Earth's axis has changed through time. If there was no tilt, we'd have no seasons. You wouldn't be enjoying summer and I wouldn't be not enjoying winter. It would be the same everywhere. So that has changed and the cycle is about 40,000 years. There's a third cycle, which is a spin of the axis of the Earth. I enjoy playing with my grandchildren, spinning table, little tops, tabletops, and spinning those around. Well, the Earth does the same. And that's, again, about 20,000. Now, if we combine those three, and there are a number of others, shorter ones, then what we get is a series of fluctuations like that. And if you take a single... 100,000 year cycle, within that, go back 125,000 years. At that time, it was wetter and warmer than today. Sea level around the Earth was five to eight meters higher than today. And the Sahara was covered in savanna forest, in savanna vegetation, and giraffes, rhinos, elephants roamed what is now the desert. 
but those happy days did not last. It was a bit like East Africa. <clears throat> and then what happened was we switched into a part of a cycle where the tropics, or the equator rather, were receiving less radiation from the sun. And the result of that was a weaker monsoon. Summer rains were shorter and less intense, and the summer rains did not extend as far north into the Sahara, and the winter rains also didn't extend as far south. And we've had this repeated over the last two and a half million years. And our ancestors, being pretty smart, or we wouldn't be here, um, capitalized on this, and so did the plants and so did the animals. And they moved across the rivers, the great rivers that flowed from the mountains of the Sahara across to the Mediterranean, down to West Africa, down to the Mediter uh, Atlantic. And they occupied it. And for something like a million years, hunter-gatherers and later fishers lived the good life in this green and pleasant land. And at Adrabus, between 9,000 and about 7,500 years ago, they lived around these little lakes. One, the older lake of several was about 15 meters deep, and it was full of hippos, crocodiles, two-meter-long Nile perch, turtles, and all sorts of other um, aquatic creatures, as well as um, aquatic birds. So people lived there and hunted and fished. They weren't very mobile. They were more or less tethered around the vicinity of the lake. But good things never last, and the lake dried out. And the winds howled and sand was distributed across the surface of the former lake until about um, six and a half thousand when it refilled. It wasn't as deep and that lasted for uh, 1,500 years or so. And the people that returned were different people. They were short, they were gracile, and they brought with them domestic cattle from the Nile Valley. Originally, they'd come from the Near East and from Iraq, and headwaters, Tigris, Euphrates, and so on. And they were actually fairly mobile. They took their cattle out to graze. They also hunted. They also fished. And then between about 5,000 and 4,500 years ago, the desiccation set in. The lakes began to shrink and dry out, some of them quite quickly. The ones that were fed by groundwater probably lasted a few more centuries. And the people had three options. What do you do when you're confronted with an extreme event? One, you adapt. Two, you migrate. Three, you become extinct. And that's it. And a lot of them migrated. They migrated down to West Africa, uh, down the river valleys. They migrated eastwards to the Nile Valley, where they could be guaranteed fairly permanent water. And no doubt some hung in there and adapted. And indeed they did. And their descendants now live in the mountains of Tibesti, the Hogar, Jebel Mara, the great mountains of the Sahara, because in sheltered valleys, there's permanent water. And even as recently as 50 years ago, in one of these um, southern mountains, there were crocodiles living in pools, eating fish, and the crocodiles were two meters long, six foot long. So the desiccation was a progressive phenomenon. 4,200 years ago, the Nile itself ceased to flow. 
and there was terrible famine in Egypt, and the old kingdom fell apart. There was cannibalism, there was starvation, there was mass social unrest. The same thing we see in Mesopotamia, in the Akkadian Empire, and we see it in India and Pakistan. Great civilizations suddenly falling apart as a result of prolonged drought. <clears throat> so, to the question that I raised at the beginning, was this desiccation of the Sahara four and a half thousand years ago caused by humans, caused by overgrazing? My answer, which I emphasize in the book, when the Sahara was green, is a resounding no. And to back that up, I've also worked quite a lot in India and China, um, across North Africa, Australia, and so on. At the same time, the lakes that had flourished before then in the deserts, or what are now the deserts of parts of China, parts of India, Pakistan, they too dried up. So we're looking at um, a global climatic event. And once again, you can't blame humans. We do enough damage as it is, but we shouldn't be blamed for things that we don't do or haven't done. And that's one of the take-home messages from the book. And the other, of course, is that to live in the desert, or to live anywhere for that matter, three things are necessary for life. And you would know that from your studies. Air, water, plants. And that's, that's it. That's what's essential. So the human inhabitants of the desert survived by being clever, by understanding their environment, by knowing where to find water, by understanding the plants, knowing when a casual rainstorm would trigger plants that would be suitable for their grazing animals, so the camels and so on, and by being clever, stoical, tough, and adaptable, they made a good living. And in the epilogue of um, when the Sahara was green, I spell out what, in my humble opinion, are the preconditions or prerequisites for achieving sustainable use of our natural resources. And I can talk about that if you want. Okay. Um, three things. One, we have to recognize that on planet Earth, the only source of a net increase in biomass is through photosynthesis and sunlight operating through plants. Everything else is recycling. You can take a bit of iron, you can take a bit of coal, you turn it into steel. That's just recycling. So that's the first thing. We have to nurture our plants, whether the natural vegetation or the humanly modified vegetation, domestic crops. They have to be looked after, maintained. Secondly, and th these two are based on the first and second law of thermodynamics, um, go back to Einstein, we must not systematically remove materials from any natural system or humanly modified system at a rate faster than the capacity of the system to replenish those materials. Soil erosion is an obvious case in point. Erode the soil, takes longer to form, and you've lost a, a major resource. The third precondition of, of the three is the mirror image of the one I've just told you. We should not systematically add substances or materials to any natural system or humanly modified system at a rate faster than the capacity of the system to absorb and recycle those materials. So air pollution, water pollution, 
overenthusiastic use of fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides, they're all examples. And the fourth, and to me, probably the most difficult and the most important, is that on this planet, there should be a fair and equitable distribution of resources essential for life. Clean water, clean air, need I say more? I mean, and that's it. That's really the epilogue. So, um, question over to you now. Yeah, it's a truly impressive uh, story. And uh, yeah, I never even thought about all of these things. And it was really interesting how you described your journey in Sahara. It's like going for a treasure hunt, isn't it? Mm. Yes, there's no substitute for fieldwork. You can read about these things, and there are wonderful books on the Sahara in French, in German, in English, in American. Um, and they will show you pretty pictures, and they will even show you pictures of archaeological sites, but they, they don't go back to when the Sahara came into being, how it came into being, what impact it had on humans, what impact humans had on the Sahara, and what the future holds in store. So I tried to, in a very simple, clear, and I hope uh, interesting way to convey all that. Now, if you ask um, what prompted me to write it, well, I'd written a couple of pretty big books already, one on the Nile and one on climate change in deserts for Cambridge University Press. And I thought it was time to do something smaller, just as difficult, but aimed at a different audience, aimed at the intelligent non-specialist interested in the world around them. And I was walking my dog early in the morning along a local creek, looking for koalas in the trees overhead, and the whole first paragraph suddenly appeared in my mind, just like that. So I got home, sat down, it was still early, I always work early, and I began typing. And I, I normally allow about a month a chapter, and that includes quite a lot of research. So I read well over a thousand items in half a dozen different languages and condensed all that into the footnotes at the end. And I enjoyed doing it, but there was one catastrophe. I wrote the first three chapters. I thought I'd be clever and save them and scrub them off my computer to make space. I used a memory stick, and it was faulty. Oh, no. I lost, I lost three months' work <laughs> through my own stupidity. <laughs> so I said to myself, oh, well, it probably wasn't any good anyway, and uh, I'll start again, which I did. Yeah, excellent, and we're glad that you did. You already had it all in your head anyway. <laughs> so that's a yes, good courage. <laughs> That's, that's true. So can you maybe tell us some of the ways that you study deserts? So like archaeological exploration, and also you mentioned quite a lot of astronomy. Yes, yes. Well, I was very lucky to work with very good teams of archaeologists, American, British, Swiss, Italian, Sudanese, and I also, because um, I spoke Arabic, having worked in Sudan for several years, and gone back repeatedly to, to work there, because I was fascinated by the story of the Nile, which is going to be my next book, next um, popular book. Um, I, Wherever I traveled in the Sahara, I found I could quite easily converse with the local people. 
and I'm a storyteller. And when I wrote this book, I, I tried to write it as if I was talking to you, as if I was telling a story. It's genetic. My mother was a storyteller. My grandfather was a storyteller. So I uh, couldn't help it. And it's been very well received, and I enjoyed doing it. And as a soul surveyor, as a reconnaissance soul surveyor, you're expected to do everything. The geology, the land use, the water quality, the vegetation, the history of the culture of the people, the migrations, what the camels feed on, medicinal properties for the plants. And this was very useful. And on one occasion, during the great drought of 1974, I was with a colleague in Wadi Aswak in the southern Sahara, and the water was green and awful. And we were thirsty. So I offered my shirt to our local Touareg uh, guide. He was young, aristocratic Touareg. He curled up his lips in scorn, disdained my sweat-ridden shirt, quite rightly, and sent his younger brother off with a little hatchet. And he came back with a couple of bits of bark. And we decanted this green sludge into a calabash, added the bark, and within less than a minute, the water had clarified. And all the nasty bits had flocculated and settled to the bottom. So we poured off the clear water into our goatskin bags. And of course, we later made, used it for tea. We never used it for washing. We didn't wash. Don't waste water washing. And now I knew that tree, Boschia senegalensis, from my time in Sudan. And I knew a number of its medicinal properties and other, uh, other purposes. What I didn't know was that particular use of the bark. And it seemed to me that we also need to acquire a knowledge of the, if you like, the biological, botanical, biomedical um, understanding of the local people across the desert. Because it's, it, it's not the same everywhere. And there's a, a book with a rather pompous title of Handbook of Useful West African Plants, first edition, an enormous book. It mentions the tree, doesn't mention this use. The second edition does. I made sure of that. And so um, it's a cumulative process. I've always learned more from the local people than I think they ever learned from me, but I would always try and explain what I was doing. I'd try and tell them about the history of the landscape, how the volcanoes came into being, the history of the Nile in the past. And they would um, look at me rather dubiously, <laughs> and then they'd tell me their stories, which were much more interesting than mine. There have been fluctuations in the climate in the Sahara, even recently. So I once went through the literature of the prophets of doom that blamed everything on humans. And whenever there was a drought along the Southern Sahara, you'd see this great spate of learned papers called about the advancing desert the encroaching Sahara. And then you'd have a 30-year spell of above-average rain, silence from the prophets of doom. And, of course, the vegetation was restored. Dunes that had become active for a while were then vegetated and fixed. So what you've got is a series of cycles, climatic cycles, different periodicities. Um, you probably 
know the old saying, big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them, and little fleas have littler fleas, and so ad infinitum. So we've got these cycles of different periodicities that um, we need to adapt to, and we need to be aware that they will occur. Droughts will come. Um, we've had to learn the hard way in Australia about um, bushfires, about droughts, about floods. If you live on a floodplain, you can bet your bottom dollar that sooner or later, the floodplain will be flooded. And um, Herodotus pointed this out during his time in Egypt two and a half thousand years ago. So when the Romans, for example, who'd been blamed for a lot of things, um, they'd been blamed for the so-called desertification in North Africa. When they arrived in North Africa, all the coastal rivers were actually cutting down, were entrenching. And the Romans very cleverly built a series of dams, porous dams, let the water through, but trapped the silt. And the silt, in turn, trapped the moisture. And over time, there was enough trapped silt in these little coastal valleys that you could grow wheat and barley, olives, um, in fact, um, make a good living. Now, the Romans had another advantage. It was also slightly wetter at that time. And we tend to forget that. For example, the mad, bad Emperor Nero sent his wretched centurions to find the sources of the Nile. And they were away for several years and they came back and they greeted the mad, bad Emperor and said, our way was blocked by impenetrable swamps. And they described them quite precisely. And they described two little hills or granite mountains that popped up from these swamps. Now those swamps today are 450 kilometers south of those mountains. And it was indeed wetter. And the great swamps of South Sudan were more extensive when the poor old Romans tried to find the sources of the Nile. Now, there was um, a Greek um, historian traveler called Diodorus Siculus, Diodorus the Sicilian. And he described rather disarmingly the cattle rustlers coming down from the Red Sea hills, raiding cattle and disappearing up into the mountains where they were safe because they were surrounded by impenetrable swamps. Now, there are no swamps today. And I visited that locality and I went down some of the wells that the local um, Bajor people had been digging in the bed of the creek, dry creek bed. And I found shells which were fresh water, permanent freshwater shells. I dated them 2,000 years old. So maybe Diodorus Siculus was right. It was wetter. Yeah, that, that's quite impressive. <laughs> so what learning about the past climates can teach us about the future. So what could be in, in store for the future of uh, this region? We will inevitably be faced with fluctuations. And the fact that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has reached levels higher than any time in the last million years, and we know them quite precisely from ice cores in Antarctica. And we know that um, carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor trap 
outgoing long-wave radiation from the Earth. They allow short-wave solar radiation to penetrate. So the lower atmosphere is becoming warmer, and the oceans have become warmer. And as they have in the past on occasions, but not as quickly as today. And so what happens is that the entire hydrological cycle is hotted up, if you like. So we, we see more extreme events. So for the future, we have to really be aware of two things. One is the normal fluctuations of wetter and drier, colder, warmer, um, which have been operating for thousands and millions of years, over which we have no control at all. Um, and secondly, superimposed on these background natural changes, these more extreme events, which, depending on when they occur, can aggravate, accentuate the impact of natural fluctuations. So I think we have to become much more adaptable. We have to become clever. And we have to take responsibility for our actions. And I, I go back to what I said much earlier. Look after the biosphere. Look after the plants. Because the plants take in carbon dioxide and give out oxygen during the daytime. If you destroy the rainforest of the Amazon or the Congo, the Zaire or Indonesia, effectively what you're doing is putting a great deal more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that is preventable. We don't have to do that. So um, my garden at home here, thanks to my wife in particular, is a mass of plants. We've got trees, we've got shrubs, we've got flowers. And it's just a delight on the eye, but also very practical. And if everyone did that, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone yes. could? Yes, for sure. And especially going back to native plants as well. Even here yes. in, in, in the, where I live, we don't cut the grasses anymore. We just cut a little skirt on both sides of the, of, of the patch of, uh, of grass. It's beautiful. Yes, absolutely right. Good. So what, so discoveries... I... <laughs> yes. and what discoveries in your research for your book, When Sahara Was Green, surprised you the most? Excellent. Yes. Um, if you need to get hold of a copy, you just go to Google, um, put in When the Sahara Was Green, Martin Williams, don't just put in Martin Williams because there are hundreds and hundreds of them. And some of them are pretty dubious characters, but uh, no doubt. Um, and even my local book bookshop here and just down the hill from where I live in Adelaide, it's the oldest bookshop in Adelaide. It stores, it, it's selling the book. Um, and I, I should offer two, two thanks. One to my wife, who was my toughest critic. When I wrote a chapter, I would give it to her and wait in fear and trembling. And then she would get back to me and say very sweetly, um, don't you think that the first half should be at the end? And don't you think all the stuff at the end should be left out? <laughs> so uh, that was quite salutary. Very good critic indeed. I was very lucky. And I had a wonderful editor at Princeton University Press, Ingrid Nerlich. And she supported me all the way through. Because when I did the original proposal, it went out to three very competent reviewers, anonymous reviewers. So I, in fact, I knew them all. And they all wanted it written their way. So the first thing you do is you, you stick up for yourself. I said, look, you can criticize my clothes. 
You can criticize the way I look. You can criticize the way I speak. You cannot criticize my style. My style is me. And she supported me. Um, at one stage, I think she had a panic attack and said, well, Martin, shouldn't we get a polisher? I said, what's a polisher? Oh, someone who will rewrite what you've written to make it suitable for the great North American public. I said, well, I don't like that idea, but try one chapter. So they did one chapter and the lady, very nice job, beautiful job, but it wasn't me. So I said, nine, no, no, yet I'm not having this. And so we dispensed from the polisher. And the next thing they said, well, we'll do an audio book. I said, okay, how do you, how do you do an audio book when there's photographs, where there's field sketches, figures, diagrams, maps? And they said, we will give you a choice of two voices. And they, there was this wonderful North American voice from Arizona or somewhere. And there was this wonderful UK voice. And I thought, well, I'm really the narrator and the anecdotes are mine. Go for the UK voice. And some of my friends have said, well, why didn't you do it? I said, oh, that would have been hopeless. I would have been coughing and sneezing and spluttering all the way through. <laughs> Wouldn't have worked. And they did a very good job indeed. So, um, so there's the audio version. There's the ebook. There's the paper book for people like scribbling in books. So I'm very pleased. And, and thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Yes, and we're very delighted to have you on. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.